This is Beyond the Pass, conversations with people from all walks of hospitality life. Centering mental health, Beyond the Pass is a conversation about life, hospitality, and what makes us get out of bed each day. Beyond the Pass is brought to you by Kelly's Cause, and the conversational digressions are brought to you by me, your host, Rachel Kerlaxley. If you can take a minute to like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, that would be very much appreciated. Without listeners like yourselves, we couldn't keep having these brilliant conversations. Enjoy the episode and keep taking care of each other. Just a quick note about sound in this episode. We had some technological difficulties, so it's a little rough at the beginning, but I promise it does get better as the episode goes on. And I can't recommend listening to this conversation enough. Pratap was an absolutely incredible guest. So thank you for muddling through our low-tech situation and have a lovely listen. Welcome back to Beyond the Pass. I'm so excited to be sitting down with Pratap Chahal. Pratap is an incredible chef who, after a decade in some very prestigious kitchens, changed course to take an alternative approach to a career in food. They founded That Hungry Chef, which alongside fermenting all things known to man, is now London's longest-running and most dearly beloved supper club. A recipe and product developer and private chef, Pratap's focus on unbridled hospitality is inspiring. Welcome, Pratap. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're very, very welcome. I'm really looking forward to this. I just want to start by asking how you got started in the industry. Ah, so as a kid, I used to always love cooking. Um, I think from the age of about seven, it was mostly helping my mum with the Christmas cakes at home. And just it was just a big passion, and that continued all through my childhood and my early and my teens. And then I decided to pretty much follow the herd and went to university like everybody else, and mm-hmm. started off with doing economics, commerce, and statistics, which I realized was definitely not for me. And <laughs> <laughs> then went on to do English literature, which I really enjoyed, but at the end of which I sort of went, well, I don't want to join the civil service like my friends. I don't want to go into mm-hmm. engineering or um, business or any finance or anything that anybody else was doing. So and I had to chat with my parents and say, look, this is my predicament in life. Um, I might just take some time off and go and discover myself as all sort of young adults are as want we to do. do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and at that point, my dad had, uh, he just went to sleep when he, he said, do you like cooking? I said, I love cooking, but so what? And he said, have you ever thought about becoming a chef and that was my ultra slow motion penny drop moment like my entire life Mm. just changed before my eyes instantly and yeah as they say the rest is history did you go to school or did you just go straight in originally meant to go study at Le Cordon Bleu in the US but then September 11 happened and there was Mm. no way a single brown young man was going to be let into the country Uh, so I did end up taking my year off and traveled around India and then applied to come to school in the UK, which was the Birmingham College of Food, Tourism and Creative Studies. And yeah, so I did a year of college there. I did a year of placement at Gordon Ramsay at the Claridge's. And then I finished my final year at college at Thames Valley University. That's also a hell of an introduction, that kitchen. <laughs> it was. I always say that I sort of went in soft and green and I sort of came out carved out of stone and being able to work <laughs> like a machine yeah and I feel like everything would feel sort of easier after that you would think um okay. yeah you know I mean, the Gordon Ramsay Claridge's was 
just an introduction into just how intense the industry is. Mm. You know, but it did, like I said, it did. I went in. I luckily I had a really thick skin going in, but mm. it was physically and mentally like extremely taxing. What would you say? is like the best kitchen job you ever had and the worst kitchen job you ever had the best kitchen i've worked in is a restaurant in south london called shea bruce uh, and it's in wandsworth common and i was there for just under two years and hands down it was the most fun i've had the the most i've learned and for years I've, you know and i'm still sort of in touch every now and then with the head chef who was my head chef there uh, mm -hmm. Anytime anybody asks me, you know, like, oh, any young chef say, oh, you know, where should I go and train? I'm like, go to Shea Bruce. You'll enjoy mm -hmm. it. You'll learn a lot. You know, they actually respect people there. And, you know, and it's no unnecessary aggression. It's all of these things that you, you don't really need in your life. That, uh, and it's, it, was a wonder, it was an amazing place. And the worst place, I would say Gordon Ramsay Claridge's in terms of yeah. it was 100 hours a week minimum. Yeah. You know, and sometimes it yeah. was 120, 140 hours a week. And yeah, it was, that nearly did, that That was the one place that nearly broke me. But somehow my stubbornness kicked in and I just went, I, I, I'm, I'm going to just ride this out. I'm always amazed that when you walk through that experience at the very beginning of your career, what motivates someone to possibly keep going? Stubbornness, I think. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm a very sort of very, very stubborn person at the heart of it. So it's of giving up. Mm. I did come close to it and then I had a chat with another chef and he just kind of said, look, just stick with it. You know, like it's going to be hell, mm -hmm. but you just, just stick with it and think things will get better. And sure enough, like after about th three or four months when my body sort of got like, used to those hours, mm. then I was like, fine, um, then I got, got used to it and tried to make the best of it. Yeah. It's amazing what becomes normal Yeah, for our routine, for our body. Like what was the thing that really made you leave restaurant kitchens behind because it was about 10 years right yeah yeah i did 10 years of it um so it was i think it's a combination of i, mean, I had a bit of a burnout and uh, in mm. 2011 and it it was a combination of do you various... mind if i just ask how did burnout look for you so like, how it, did you recognize that oh um so it was a combination it started off with it was a bunch of things so it was losing my brother um Mm. and sort of not sort of fully devoting time to sort of understand that trauma and having a severely bad breakup. Um, so that led to a lot of drugs and more drugs. I'd be like, I'd be, you know, sort of, I'd come home from work and then sort of take drugs and solo all night and then go ho and not sleep a wink and then go into work the next morning and then just plow through it and then pretty much just repeat the whole thing. And then uh, after a point, the depression started kicking in and there were mornings where I'd be standing at the bus stop just going, oh, there's a bus coming and it's coming really fast. I, you know, I, it may, I'm sure it won't hurt if I just step out at the wrong time. And mm. it took enough times for this happening and me just going if i carry on with this i'm really going to end up dead or severely mm -hmm. like very badly injured you know um mm -hmm. and then i decided to take say stop okay I, I need to take a i need to take some time off so i took a year off decided to go and see all the friends whose weddings i'd missed you know all the all the all the travel that i'd said i would do but didn't get around to doing um just just catching up on life really
And was it that as you were like wandering and going and seeing friends and taking that year off, is that where the idea for Hungry Chef started or had you kind of had that percolator? No, so the Hungry Chef, when I started traveling, it I started it as a blog just to basically just do restaurant reviews of, because I went pretty much ate my, it was my eat, pray, love year. So I went, you know, ate my way around the world. Um, more on that in a, in a little bit. So I ate my way around the world. So I thought, I'm going to be eating in all these places, street food markets, fine dining restaurants, casual restaurants, you know, like, and just wanted to document all of it. So that Hungry Chef was my, it originally started with that Hungry Chef on the other side of the pass. And I'm like, okay, mm. so this is going to be my little uh, journal of my year off. And then, so that was the eat part of it. The pray part of my year off was I went and did a 10-day silent meditation uh, called Vipassana in, in Malaysia. And that was amazing because I was finally able to sort of deal with my brother's death, which I'd been putting mm. away for long. You know, And that was a huge, huge change in my mental health and in my emotional health. And the love part of it, so I ended up getting married at the end of that year. You know, um, I sort of re- You are Julia Roberts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Far hairier, not as good looking, but yes. <laughs> and um, yes, and then I sort of ended up marrying some uh, my wife Nick, who we we were sort of best friends in college, and I made the mistake of falling in love with her then, and I made the even bigger mistake, as all young adult men are, you know, want to do, and of confessing to her. At which point she just went, yeah, but I've got a boyfriend, so sorry, you know, and I just went, you know, too much was that, I mean, you know, and uh, just sort of left that. And then we sort of reconnected over the years, uh, but then properly reconnected at uh, during my year off and found that, yeah, okay, we really like each other and, you know, things mm. just escalated and 10 years later, we, we're still here. That's amazing. And when you got home, and so you're married, you're sort of dealt with some grief and like worked through some mental health stuff, and you've been doing this blog and documenting this experience. How did that become inviting a whole bunch of people to your house? I sort of came back and, you know, it's after post sort of wedding and all that and things settled out. I'm like, okay, I need to now start thinking of getting back to work. And so then I said Mm. to Nick, I said, but I don't really know if I want to go back working in restaurants because you'll never see me and I'm just going to go back into that same environment that you know I I really wanted to get out of and she had just and so she's a child psychologist by training and she got very badly burnt out by doing 10 years of that in India mm-hmm. and uh, we, would, we just got to like, well why don't we just start something on our own you know like we have our dining room you know let's because supper clubs had just about started up in London then with a look okay let's try doing a supper club and at the same time i said well i've always wanted to i've got this recipe for this great chili sauce that i want to do you know and she said okay well let's let's go with that let's start supper clubs and let's make some chili sauces you know do the farmer's market do do all of that mm-hmm. and at that point we met a very very she's now a very very dear friend Liv, who had started this company called grub club along with her business partner sid and they were just starting off. So we met them at the right time. And, and they said, look, come on board, because we, our website is going to basically, and like the eat, I think it's going to be the Airbnb for alternative dining experiences in London. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we partnered with them. And yeah, and then they just really took off. Then supper clubs came. And then people were like, well, can you cater for my private party? 
you know, so they started doing that and then sort of corporate parties started coming in and, you know, and before we knew, we were like, oh my God, this has become a full-time job. Um, did Nick have any experience sort of in the restaurant world and hospitality and kitchen? No, no, no experience in hospitality as such, but she's, as we say, she, she's the aesthetics of the business uh, and I'm mm. the logistics of the business. Mm. Yeah, so she has, but she's got a lot of experience in just hosting and you know like just and she's yeah. really great with people so she does the front of house yeah you know so for both of us it was a huge learning curve because i'd never worked outside a restaurant she'd never worked in hospitality so and it was also at that point where i realized that kitchens at least kitchens that i spent time in and grew up in are very aggressive places so for example like mm. i'd be in the kitchen plating something and nick would come try to help me um and if she was within touching distance just muscle me, my, my elbow would come out and I'd elbow her really sharply, you know, and, yeah. or like, or I'd kick her, you know, without realizing it, you know, then this yeah, happened enough yeah. times and she actually videoed it and I just went, I'm so sorry, like, it's, this is just mm. what we do in kitchens, you know, if another chef comes next mm. to you, you'll elbow them, you'll kick them, you'll, you know, you'll whip them with a, with a cloth or, you know, like, you know, you'll take a hot pan out of the oven and won't tell anybody that it's really hot, so one person's going to burn themselves and you laugh at it. So then, so it took about three years uh, of what we what she now calls domestic hospitality violence <laughs> for us to sort of get our groove you know and now it's like now now it's like a waltz and if i'm turning around she ducks you know and if she's walking by like i don't i squeeze in which is like the magic like that's the best yeah that's the part that is so good when it's good like that clicking but I think you bring up something so interesting and the way that you sort of like physiologically carried this conditioning that you had around other people space competitiveness aggression like it's so fascinating how that sat within you even though you removed yourself from the environment you knew you needed something new but sort of like the remnants do you remember having a moment or maybe it's still to come or maybe it will never come where you felt like you'd really you were really doing things in a different way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or like all those habits and like... I think... Oh, this happened so, um, about six years ago. Um, I helped open a restaurant in Soho called Flavor Bastard. And it was there when I started, you know, I was head chef there. And then I realized that I was doing things differently. I was running a kitchen in a way that... I had never known before, you know, I was mm. aware of people's mental health and I was you know, aware of just relationships and, you know, like safe spaces and, you know, just encouraging people to, uh, all my, all my chefs, we had, I had an incredibly diverse um, uh, kitchen team and restaurant team. So it was just really making an effort to make sure that everyone was a having fun, you know, because the one thing I realized mm. that Gordon Ramsay is the one thing I got told every day is like, why are you smiling? You're not here to have fun. You know, so we used to go into the fridge to laugh. <laughs> so, you know, like we would, so it was just doing things in a completely different way. And that's when I realized, mm. okay, this is it. You know, I've, yeah. I've changed, you know, and at no point was I, I would walk past chefs all that. I'm like, oh, I'm not inclined to kick them or, you know, or hit mm. them or push them out of the way or be rude or mm. be aggressive. You know, or if mm. I'm, or if I do say, if I'm rude or aggressive, I'll take them aside after service and say, look, I'm really sorry, you know, um, mm. but I need you to understand that who I am during service time is not who I am generally because mm -hmm. service is stressful. And I will, and I think I told everybody at the time of getting the job saying, look, I will shout at you. I will scream at you during service, but 
we'll talk about it afterwards. People and my and my team really really appreciated that, and you know, and they stuck with me to the point where I worked. There was one the opening. I was I ended up doing fifty days straight without a day off, and they put up with me. You know, at the, but at the end of it, they were like, "Chef, we've all had a talk, and we think you should take a day off." but it also says something when folks are coming to you like when there's transparency around behavior and i think the where we see like the most violence sort of and the most trauma sort of come out of kitchens is when it's not talked about if it is talked about it's not fully acknowledged there's no indication of how bad it actually is to work in an environment with no psychological safety and you certainly could never tell your chef you need to fucking chill like that to me is the real cultural shift that can happen. I wonder, did you go into that venture intentionally being like, I want to do things differently? Or was it just sort of naturally a byproduct of having been out of kitchens and seeing alternative ways? I think a bit of both, really. Um, It was a bit of like, okay, um, I want to do things differently. So right from the outset, um, we partnered with, whether we we got hospitality action on board. And I'm like, I want to have this thing on board, you know? And I think it was... Just before that, I had done the mental health first aid course uh, with mm. Emma. With her, you know, Emma, she was part mm. of through Kelly's course, and so I had I had the tools I needed to know that okay, I want to do things differently. Mm. And it was it was great because there's a show called The Bear. I don't know if you've seen it. In season one, it was the only episode thing I've ever watched on TV that gave me anxiety and stress and like PTSD because that the way things unfold in that episode is ex- I had a service mm-hmm. exactly like that at Flavor Bastard where it's the busiest night of the year things are just going crazy we're short staffed my pastry chef I said something to my I shouted at my pastry chef he threw a plate at me and walked out you know <laughs> but like I, I got him back the next day and said look let's let's talk about what happened he's like I'm handing my notice in I'm like look, look why are you handing your notice in you know shit happens you know like Let's just, you know, so, and he had he stayed with me for another whole year. Yeah, so it was, it was, and it was also just letting any but everybody know that um, there is help out there, you know, because we had a chef who was very alcoholic. So we got therapy for him. We had mm. somebody that was kind of on the um, on the spectrum for at least a, a, a paranoia and. You know, paranoid schizophrenic. So, so we got we got help for him. Um, so mm. there was a lot involved, mm. and it was it was exhausting, but it was also just going. But this is this is how it should be. I think it becomes so much of it is almost another job because the skill set is incredibly different. The aptitude around navigating so many of these resources is yeah. It's funny because different. you end up becoming yeah. You end up becoming boss, uncle, father, money lender therapist you know and you just have encompassed so many roles but then they you get you know you get respect out of that you get loyalty you know and in, and in an industry where you can walk out of a job at eight o'clock in the morning and have one by 8 p.m loyalty is probably the strongest and biggest asset there is yeah and there's such a quality difference when loyalty is built on fear or sometimes prestige versus respect yes yeah i mean because when i was working at uh, gordon ramsay claridge's that loyalty was built out of prestige i uh, you know and fear uh, the we had mm-hmm. such a high mm-hmm. staff turnover it was it was ridiculous like some people would come in work half a day and be like 
I can't do this. Anyway, and then sometimes you've had people there who've been there for two years and then suddenly one day something would snap and that's it, they were gone. You know, um, and other times, like there was one time when mm. Gordon came in, um, I think it was Christmas Eve, and there was a chef there, James, who'd been there for three years and had just moved on to a new section. And it was, it was like one of the busiest nights of the year. And he was struggling a little bit just because, you know, it, it's, Avi was short staffed and, uh, and it's a new, it's a new section. He didn't have time to acclimatize, mm. but Gordon came in and said, all right, James, fuck off. You're sacked. Go and feel sorry for yourself. Go on, out you go. You know, and we just went, shit. Okay, you know, and, and that was something that, yeah. You know, and I, I did catch myself doing that to somebody once. And and I was like, oh my God, no, I can't. No, 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 no. You know, like it's... No, it just makes, like, all of that behavior is learned behavior. So there's something that I find so infuriating. And you get this from sort of a certain set of chefs, often that skew a little bit older. And they're like, kids today, they can't hack shit. And I'm like, okay, you learned how to be in these environments from somewhere, from something, from some determination. People that are coming up have different expectations around work and about psychological safety. That doesn't make them lazy. Yeah. It means that they were conditioned differently than you. And I think there's a real resistance to see how that can be beneficial and particularly around the recruitment crisis that is kind of ongoing but was so heightened for the past year, it was fascinating to me, people being like, people don't want to come into the industry, people don't want to come into the industry. And I'm like, have you watched, like, Gordon Ramsay's show on TV? Have you watched Boiling Point? Like, of course they don't. Like, so it's this interesting thing where people are like, we need to get people in, we need to get people in. And I'm like, you could get a thousand people into your restaurant if you don't treat them in a non-abusive way, you're going to have a thousand people leaving your restaurant at the end of the day. hundred percent. You know, and I think a lot of it also has to do with toxic masculinity, to be honest. You know, I think that is an entirely different army that you have to battle with. And that is also conditioning patriarchy. You know, there's so many sort of historical and cultural nuances that play into that. But also it's, I think the, the pandemic and Brexit brought about a seismic shift in the industry with restaurants realizing that, okay, we are really in the shit now. Um, so they're now closing, not, they're not open seven days a week. So they're closing for more services. So their staff are working less, you know, they're offering, I mean, after the pandemic, the, I think wages went up about 30 or 40%. Um, and, so that happened. A lot more restaurants are offering mental health support, and so these things are slowly coming in. You know, so it's it's a bit all over the place because you're. It's I don't know how many restaurants are going to be able to afford all this because no restaurants are profit-making machines. But I think give it about ten years or so because these these things take about five to ten years to actually settle in. And even if restaurants don't have you know can't afford all that, like you just need the the top tier the top brass to have that training you know say mental health first aid training you know that and just an understanding of giving their team a safe space and an open door you know be like chef I'll, you know like I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling so well today like you know and be like rather than oh, well suck it up or, you know, or the, the worst one is uh, cheer up you know it's not so bad or you know you it'll, it'll be over soon or you know just mm. cheer up like that's you know, and I see that people doing that in, on social media so much mm. and I'm like stop saying cheer up 
you know, that's the pretty, like the absolute worst thing you can tell somebody who's feeling down. And ultimately, I think that sometimes this has to be the angle, but like it won't get you anywhere. Like it's not your bottom line is going to be affected if you don't treat people carefully. Absolutely, you know, and again, we, this whole thing of like, well, we were, you know, we were tougher than the rest back in our time. Sure, we were, but I've now been in therapy for six years to try and unfuck myself, you know, um, and just slowly speaking, going, Jesus, yeah, all that tough, you know, all that like, you know, rock hard toughness and you know, like alpha male that I had to be. It's you know, it it wears you down eventually. You know, and it starts coming out into all your personal relationships, your other relationships, you know, and it just starts messing things around. And there isn't, I don't think that there's a way to avoid it. Somebody really brilliant said to me recently, they were like, if somebody is talking about how it is in their kitchen, think about it. If that person was like their boyfriend or girlfriend, would you tell them to stay or not? Like if the behavior that they're experiencing at work is that. And I was like, that is such a smart way to put it because our barometer for like what's abuse in a kitchen is so skewed so skewed and you're right the damage can be long 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 lasting and to unlearn all that behavior takes so much time yeah and, and especially because these kitchens you often have young adults coming into the kitchen who are highly impressionable and you know it's it they you can either turn them into you know like absolutely toxic alpha males you know, and again, it, it's the same thing with, you know, like with teenage boys watching pornography and having unrealistic expectations of sex, you know, and so you have, you train these young adults in the kitchen and they then have unrealistic expectations of just relationships and how to talk to people, you know, and um, just that tenderness needs to be inculcated at that point. Because you can be a soldier, but also, you know, you can, you can have a heart. You, know, you, you can be an empathetic soldier at the end of it, and that'll get you a lot longer and a lot further in life. I think I used to confuse um, the great chefs I knew. There was sort of an idea that you had to be a piece of shit a little bit. And as I got older and I started looking more closely at the chefs that I work with that were the most successful, the strongest on the past, had the best teams, they were fucking kind, like really kind people. When you were in those environments that were more, I'll call them traditional, and people can read into that what they like, um, how did you sort of maintain love of food, love of ingredient, that real culinary passion? How do you, yeah, how did you maintain that when you're in the whirlwind? I think it was just the excitement of learning, you know, and that's one thing that never stopped. You know, and every time I was working enough in a restaurant, I went, okay, I've kind of learned all that I can from here, I would move to another restaurant. You know, so it was mm. constantly being able to carry on that learning and that excitement that kept me going. Of course, there was all the drugs mm. and alcohol and smoking that sort of <laughs> did it, took care of the rest. And when you think now, so like I know at the minute you're doing Feast of the Maharajas yes. in the Supper Club and it's 600 years of... Yeah, it's roughly. So the uh, the earliest recipes go back to about the, the sort of mid-14th century. The process of developing that meal and like when you think about sort of the grains of passion you had as a, as a kid and then all the way through your kitchen career and now you're making this like 
thing of epic proportion. What was the process of sort of building out that idea and starting to develop those recipes and that menu? I think just generally what I mean, um, with all the menus that I do with uh, now at the moment, it's, it's so much fun because our supper clubs tend to be quite sort of story based and story led with a lot of sort of um, sound elements and like um, sound bites and storytelling. And, you know, there's a lot of multi-sensory elements that come into it. And it's the whole sort of interplay with talking to the guests and setting up the space. And that's a lot of fun. So for the Feast of the Maharajas, it started off by me getting a wedding present. So one of my wife's best friends is from a royal family in central India. And her mum had realised that the the cuisine, the history, the the lifestyle, you know, all of these stories were being lost um, because royal families were sort of in decline and, you know, no one had documented anything. So she went around to mm. some of the existing royal families that she knew and said, look, I want to preserve our heritage and food and recipes. So she got a lot of these recipes from all over India and sort of just compiled a book called Cooking of the Maharajas. And just for, just a, like a, a hundred or so copies just for friends and family. And then I got one as a wedding present. Mm. So then I looked into that and went, oh, this this is great. This could be uh, a great annual uh, our winter sort of supper club to do. You know, and year on year, then it's just going... Oh, this is you know, just researching more and more stories and the history of mm. Indian food. And so that's where it came about. Which I think just understanding the the width and breadth of Indian cuisine, you know, and um, just discovering it for the, because I was classically French trained. So it's only mm. the last 10 years of running my own business that I've really gotten into understanding and learning Indian cuisine from the, from the ground up. So then that's been the that's that's been the most fun bit, but also just 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 learning the history of a lot of the dishes that we eat. So when you think about what's next, as you keep doing supper clubs and you're sort of in this after your eat, pray, love year stage of your career. Yeah. Uh, now you've been doing it for a while, but what do you think the goals are before you like retire? I don't know. Is that okay, crazy so, yeah. So this year we oh, actually it's... celebrated ten years of that hungry chef. You know, so we're super happy. That's um, amazing. I think going forward. You were able to sort of really, um, so along with supper clubs and doing private events, because we do supper clubs, we do people hire our dining room as a private dining room for their private parties, or we go to people's houses as a private chef, or if it's a much bigger event, we've got uh, uh, various venues that we use around London uh, to basically host events. And but then also this, for, for the past few years, I've also been working with a lot of small producers um, who work sort of to supply things like delis and supermarkets and it was like food producers really um helping them with their development process so that's been a lot of fun and i really sort of really enjoy discovering an entire side different side to the food industry you know so whether it's developing recipes for jams or chutneys or pickles or sort of um you know seaweed and sesame sprinkles that get then supplied to places like itsu and and wagamama so it's a lot of that, but I think going forward, I think next year I've got some interesting. I would I'd like to do a lot more collaborations now, um, you know. And I've got a few. I did we did one with the Robin from the Koji Kitchen this this year, which we where we he ran a miso workshop, um, and then I did a sort of like a seven course 
menu based entirely around miso and different types of miso. You know, uh, next year I've got one with uh, Sarah, who is the honey sommelier, and we're going to do like a honey masterclass and a honey honey based lunch. You know, then and then I want to do something around like really interesting cocktails. Uh, but most of all, I think there's one very interesting. Sadly, I can't tell you anything about it at the moment because it's still under development. Um, there's two things that we have got under development. One's a, just a very whimsical supper club experience to replace our Alice in Wonderland, which we've just retired this year. And one's a very serious experience that is designed it, that is being designed to make diners very uncomfortable with the discourse but very at ease with the food you know so it's hoping to challenge a lot of stereotypes and challenge a lot of misconceptions we have about just us as humans um so that's that's all i want to say about that at the moment because it's still under development but yeah so i think it's working on just more fun experiences and trying to weave a lot more storytelling and work with a lot more creative people you know and just sort of put different our minds together and just create just fun experiences for people do you have like a dream collaborator bucket list person that you'd want to do no no dream i think i i keep meeting so many interesting people that are doing you know Mm -hmm. a lot of fun things you know and some of them are in food some of them are not in food uh, you know, like we, there's this one of my dear friends, Ada. She is, she's currently the, she's uh, the head of the chair of the Mental Health First Aid England, and mm. she runs a a program called Cyborg Shamanism. You know, and with, with that basically, as in it's always, and that's a training program for corporates that looks at how can we use ancient wisdom and ancient technology, but in a modern setting, to effectively influence the kind of ancestry that you want to be you know so we've been mm-hmm. in chats in talks for you know a few months to see it like let, let's work together let's create an experience that can combine sort of what she does you know, and what i do and you know combine these things together so try and combining different disciplines to just yeah just for us to have fun mostly um you know and if something really fun and comes out for for our customers and for our diners then even better yeah, you're not in Claridge's anymore. You're allowed to smile. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I also just like everything that you've described has like deeply delighted me. Like they won't be able to see my face, but I'm like. <laughs> and I really I just want you to keep us. I'm going to bother you to keep us posted um, so that we can share this about with our network, because I think there's such a lack of like role modeling in terms of like where can you go if you're in a kitchen right now and you're miserable or you're starting to lose your passion it's people like you doing stuff that's innovative and exciting and creative that's what i think helps the industry survive and helps people stay in it in a way that's healthy for them yeah i think it is it is you know we we, uh, yeah um absolutely and what you need i think we do need more people to be open about just the hell they've been through, you know, and uh, mm. and a being 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 a man. Be, I think it's just whether well, it doesn't matter what culture you're from, but especially in India, you sort of grow up being told, well, you know, you're a man, and you know, you're, you you have to just suck it up and 
to never show vulnerability, you know, because that's that's the biggest weakness. And mm-hmm. having now been in therapy for six years and going actually displaying my vulnerability to people, but coming from a point of having gone through that and that is my strength and it allows people to trust you and be like okay well you've shared your vulnerability with me like this is what i'm going through this is what i went through and you know i just need someone to tell you know and half the time people just need someone to talk to Mm. you know they don't need a solution they don't need an answer they just need somebody to listen i think that is a beautiful pearl of wisdom i mean you've completely hit the nail on the head and even talking to you today, just personally, like the vulnerability that you've shown even in this conversation and the way that you can show up with your whole history, it's just really beautiful. And it's just been a real Oh, thank you very pleasure. much. So thank you for that. It, yeah, it's a lot of hard work that went into that. You know, and it's still it's still ongoing work, but it helps. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's funny because I think when you're doing it, it can like feel kind of simple and it's easy to forget where you started. And your relationship to all of this stuff, it's just, but it's amazing. So Petra's <laughs> very good. Um, okay, we're going to do some quick fire questions. Boom, 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 boom. Um, and then I'll let you go into your day. Um, okay, what is your favorite place to travel food-wise? Spain. Who is your favorite pop icon? I'd say Pink. That's a great answer. <laughs> you, oh, she's good. Um, best meal you've had in the past month? In the past one month, so it always has to be. My yeah. favorite restaurant is, oh, actually, the best meal I've had in the past month would be at this restaurant in Port, in Porto, in Portugal, called um, Cojinha da Flores. And that is Nuno Mendes's new restaurant that he's just opened there. And it was absolutely phenomenal. What is your favorite building in London? Favorite building in London? Probably the Barbican. Who is your hospitality hero? So that can be someone you've worked with, somebody you've never worked with, but who you just really admire, somebody doing anything, anywhere, any part of the industry, um, but who you see as like an example of what's amazing about it. Hospitality hero, no, I've got, uh, it would be Jose, the, uh, the chef called Jose Andres, who is based out of LA, but he also runs something called World Central Kitchen, um, which is an, uh, basically it's an aid agency and they are any disaster anywhere in the world they are the first responders that go and basically feed people but also generally like he does podcasts and he i've seen him you know sort of thing uh on his socials he's just uh an amazing inspirational kind and generous man I, and i think as a chef he's, he's, a, he's a brilliant chef and yeah it, I, 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 at the moment he's kind of my hero Thank you so much for joining us today. For everyone listening, we're going to link to The Hungry Chef in the show notes for this episode. Please go follow, look, like. If you haven't been to a supper club already, it's clear to all of us that we have to be asses in seats. Um, thank you so much and have a good rest of your day. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. Bye. Beyond the Path is produced by Kelly's Cause. For more information about Kelly's Cause, please head to kellyscause.com or find us on Instagram at Kelly's Cause.